Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Ready? Okay. Welcome to this session on grief and loss. My name is Steve, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. Um, Gene and I will be facilitating this session. Um, uh, I've been sober. I'm Steve. I'm a sexologist. I've been sober since August the 5th, 2001. Gene, do you want to? I'm Gene, sexaholic. Been sober since December 30th of 08. 08? Great. Thank you. Um, Each of us will share our recovery on this topic. Then we will take time to answer questions. Questions will be taken from the Ask It Basket. If you wish to participate, write your question on a 3 by 5 card and place it in the basket on the table. Just run up here. No basket. There's no, yeah, just place it right up here. Okay, the cards are here on the front row. Um, thank you. Um, in the spirit of the fifth tradition to carry the message, this is a recorded session. The recording equipment will not be turned off during the session. We ask that you please silence all phones. Let's open with a serenity prayer. Serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. Amen. I'm Steve, I'm a sexaholic. And uh, grief and loss. Um, you know, this, this room, this McGavick room for the weekend is about, um, uh, it says deeper recovery, and it's about the, the theme of the conference, which is designed for living. And um, first thing I want to say about grief and loss is I think it's kind of like what the big book says about spiritual experience. It's not the same for any person in recovery. Um, but... Um, what grief and loss means to me is is uh, a part of my story, and you know, the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous says our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. And for me, the whole concept of grief and loss is very much connected to. Um, my story. There's this old timer from AA named Sandy B, and he passed away a few years ago with somewhere between 45 and 50 years of sobriety. He got sober in like 63, I think, or 62. Anyway, Sandy used to say that when he came into AA, he had one of the worst childhoods of anybody he had ever met. And 40 years later, he had one of the best childhoods of anybody he had ever met. And nothing had changed about his childhood, but his experience of his childhood had changed. And to me, that's what my story is in any given moment. It's... It's what I'm able to make out of the facts of my life, the past and present, and even how I look at the possibilities for my future. So um, part of this idea of grief and loss is about how I experience grief and loss in recovery after working the steps with years of sobriety but that's intimately connected to how I experienced grief and loss 
or a better way I think to say it, I would the way I would say it today or see it today is that I, how I failed to experience grief and loss. I failed to connect. Um, this thing called a story is is really about how to take the elements of my life and put them together in the sequence that makes sense. And that and the sense that I get from that is a kind of a when when that works when that story rings true, then I have a sense of peace about who I am and where I am and what what the sto- where the story of my life is leading. And so I, part of my story is in my early recovery, it's like Sandy said, I began to experience pain from things that had happened decades ago. And there's an element to that which is dangerous because if I am living in the past, then I can't get free. But in my early recovery, the past was very much present because there is a cost to spending an entire lifetime covering up the pain of loss. And so when I got sober and I wasn't bearing it anymore, there it was right here, right now, in my mind, in my body. And I looked at my child. I had to do what's called work. Now, I recovery also for each individual person. There are boundaries that I try to keep. That's one of the things I learned. Uh, I learned some some about that in here in these rooms, and I learned some about that in other places in different words sometimes. But um, there are ways that the addiction can interfere with my ability to make sense of my own life, to make sense of what has happened and what hasn't happened. And there are other things that can interfere too. And um, I'm one of the people who have needed and have greatly benefited from approaches to healing that are an outside issue as far as our... uh, uh, program is concerned or fellowship but I mean there's much a part of my story is as, as a cancer treatment is as, as to someone else's story or you know the fact that you know there might have been drinking and drugging in, in my story and so my childhood and and the the people that I went to for healing they all sent me back here for my addiction but there was work that I had to do to explore that. And with the help of a professional, I'm going to say that there, that I have two experiences with, with the mental health professionals. One is before recovery and one is after recovery. And there are four things that I did once I got into recovery that I never did before. And one of them was tell the truth. One of them was follow directions. One of them was stay sober. And one of them was find a professional who knows how to treat what I have. And I didn't do any of those things before recovery. And you know what? It didn't work. (laughs) And and I had a very different experience in recovery when I'm sober, working the steps. And the principles and the steps, I I find that they're at work in any kind of healing, wherever, wherever you find it. The truth is God's property wherever you find it. But um, so early in recovery, I could not remember any good thing from my childhood because when I thought about my childhood, there was this unresolved pain and it was at the forefront of every memory. And this was very painful to my mom because she remembered a lot of happy times and I couldn't connect with them. And I learned that the work that I did to process the grief. I was able to let go of that pain. I, was, I had to go through that pain in order to get free of it. 
And, and the memory of the pain isn't gone, but it no longer obliterates all the other memories. And so my story is changing as I go through this process. How I see my past and, and the story of how that's connected to my present and where God is taking me in my future is all changed. Um, another important thing about loss for me, grief and loss, loss has, is connected with value. And I can't experience grief and loss without in some way having a real sense of the value. Um, my, my biological father died when I was two days old. I didn't have a single word that I knew at that time. I never saw him. He was in an ICU when I was born. I never met him. And I spent most of my life, there was a lot, part, part of my story today is that I lived in, my, in, in an early life, I learned to deny the reality of my own feelings and my own likes and dislikes. And I really didn't know things that I think many, many people are able to connect with. There's something that's disconnected that's not, it's not broken in every sexaholic I've met. It's not broken in every addict I've met. It's broken in many of us. I I find many brothers and sisters in here. But I didn't know that I didn't know. And when I was in treatment and I had about 30 or 60 days of sobriety, I was in a group where I was, I was in a treatment uh, house with 14 men and three of them were physicians who had sexually abused their children. And I was one of those men. And I was in a group where another one of these men was being read a letter that his wife had written describing what it was like to to just come home and find him molesting their daughter in the bathtub. And I had an experience in which it it wasn't a real thing. I mean, what what I saw in my mind wasn't real. I was imagining coming home and discovering my wife molesting my stepson, who as much as I knew how and as much as I could conceive of the word, I, I loved him. And I became so angry at the idea of finding someone hurting him. And then when I realized that it was her hurting him, it broke me. And then I realized that this part of me realized this all happened in seconds. And I realized my, my mind corrected that and said, no, that's not what happened. I was the perpetrator and she discovered me. And I felt all of this pain that I had never been able to feel before. The pain of someone that I love, that I thought I would die for being harmed like this and then discovering the pain of someone you love being the one that harmed that person and then discovering that flipping that all around and that was what I had done to my wife and to him. And it just broke me. And I began to feel things there it was the beginning of something of an ability to see myself as I really was and the beginning of ability to take responsibility for what I what I had done as being separate from who I am um, and and a lot of healing came out of that About four years later, I was listening to a song that a friend of mine wrote 
about a baseball glove that his father had played baseball with him, and now he was playing baseball with that glove with his son. And it was about a love that was being handed down to father and the son. And I was 42 years old, and I heard the song, and it's the first time I realized that there was there'd been a hole in me since I was very young, that that father that wasn't there who died when I was two days old. I didn't know how to grieve that. I didn't know how to feel that. I didn't know. It wasn't real to me. You know, I would say, oh, my father died when I was two days old. And people would say, oh, I'm so sorry. And I was like, no, it's okay. I never knew him. I I never missed him. I, I had no clue that that hole was inside of me. And I was living in a false reality until I encountered this pain and this grief and and experienced it. And until I did that, I could not connect with the loss. But once I processed the grief and the loss, I can connect with the value of what I had lost. And today, that makes me more human. When I'm disconnected and I can't feel it, my feelings, I mean, that's, that's what a sociopath is. They're just totally disconnected from their own humanity. It doesn't make me a monster. That's the tragedy. If I was a monster, I'd just be acting out my own nature to do these horrible things. The tragedy is that I'm a human being and I did those things. I betrayed my nature and that helped save me. I had a sponsor in the AA fellowship who told me the same thing that they told me in the treatment center and the same things that I hear when I encounter the love in these rooms in our fellowship He said, those things aren't who you are. If they were who you are, then they wouldn't have been killing you inside to do them. Those things are who you're not. And that's what I can become free of when when I work this program and I seek this healing. So... Grief and loss for me, today, I'm still learning how to take the elements of what happens in my life and what I feel about it and piece it together in a story. About four years ago, my brother drank himself to death. My older brother, he was 12 when I was born. And uh, this was my biological father's son, my mother's stepson, my half-brother. And I had been 15 years sober at this point. I had 12-stepped him into a treatment center 15 months earlier because he was living on the street. And he had been thrown out of a Salvation Army shelter in February, and it was 20 degrees, and the best plan he was had was to call up my mom and beg her for money so he could stay in a hotel and go back on Monday and beg them to let him back in the Salvation Army. And that right there is a picture of me at my bottom. I wasn't, I wasn't in... A hotel. I wasn't drinking bourbon. I wasn't begging, you know, to be led into a Salvation Army. But in every way that I knew how to relate to myself, my story, my identity that I had found in my way of living was that I was a complete and utter failure. And that's how recovery 
changes me is by changing everything. And, and it changes my definition of success. You know, today, I'm a guy who used to have a medical license. I used to have a family. I used to have a promising future. You know? And today, that old way of thinking tells me I'm a loser, I'm a failure. And I know whose voice that is. And I'm so grateful that God has sent me a way to face the things that I have to face. I still, I still don't know if I know how to grieve my brother's loss. I'm very grateful that my sponsor had the day off from work and he was able to drive to Dixon and go to the hospital and be with me while I looked at my brother's body in the body bag, all yellow. His, he was in rigor mortis and his dentures were all misplaced and he looked horrible. And the best I could do was try to get him to the undertaker and cleaned up a little t- so when his daughter came to see him, she wouldn't have to look at that. And I adopted his dog, and I own her, do- I own her today, and she's the nicest dog I've ever owned. And I know I'm going to lose her one day, and maybe by then I'm going to know how to grieve my brother. But the... Steps and the simple instructions in the big book put me on a path that changes my reality. This is what a psychic change is, and, and it's what a spiritual experience is. And there's a, many kinds of spiritual experience, but we in here are interested in the kinds of spiritual experience that are sufficient to bring about a relief from sexaholism. And so... Th- and my sexaholism isn't just about not acting out. This AA old-timer used to say, this thing is so much more than not acting out. I mean, he would say drinking, but... Yeah, this is, this is so much more than not drinking. Um, I am learning who Steve is today. The real Steve. The, God, the Steve that God created me to be. And God has different rules for what success means. Success isn't measured whether by whether I get what I want. It's whether I can live through what my life brings to me and be who I believe I'm supposed to be. And that is what I lost in my disease, is the ability to be who I really am. And that is what you have given me. And so the pain of what I lost gives me the ability to see the value of what I have and to experience it more truly and more deeply. And I believe today that's my story about what grief and loss means. Thanks. I'm Gene. I'm a sexaholic. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I can relate to a lot of your share. Um, there's more of you out here than I thought there would be. I mean, on grief and loss, I thought it would be just maybe five or ten of us in here. <laughs> but that's not the fact, is it? Um, I'm going to talk about grief a little bit. Uh, Every one of us in this room are in some way or shape or form of grief right now. And we've lost. Uh, uh, Let let me ask you, um, how many of you in your acting out, you, you knew that your acting out was your best friend? Yeah. And we lost our best friend. That's that's it. We're here because we lost our best friend. And some of us are not so settled with that than others. And that kind of tells with us in our program. It tells with us in our guts, in our life, in our how we're doing. 
Um, it, it's pretty well understood in terms of grief that grief has stages. It's pretty well, with people who deal with grief all the time. We know there's a first stage is denial. What? No. No way. And there's the next stage is anger. Uh, hell no. It's anger. So we get mad at God. We get mad at ourselves. We get mad at somebody else. Usually it's somebody else. They did that to me. And the next stage is a bargaining. It's less clear what that is, but it usually is in the form of, God, if you'll only get me out of this, I'll never do that again. It's a kind of a negotiation with the creator of the world in our life. And, you know, we want to do right, we want to get right, or... God, if you'll, you know, I promise I'll do this if you'll get me out of this mess. And then the fourth stage is our true sadness or the real sense of letting the loss hit us. Uh, as I saw, it hit with Steve and it hits with me all the time of actually letting myself feel that sadness and loss, the pain of it and the reality of it. And then a fourth stage is called acceptance. <laughs> and we have page 417 of the big book is all full of and it's just very beautiful about acceptance. And acceptance is so much a part of our program. And when I can accept myself as a sexaholic, as a who I am or whatever it is, uh, if I can get there, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in better shape. And I know I'm, I'm in better shape when I'm accepting that. Well, these okay. These are well-known stages, but you know what? What does that do for us? I mean, you can identify for yourself. Well, where am I with my loss of my addiction and my best friend? Um, person, personally, I tend to bounce around in these stages. I don't know. Some experts say, well, you got to go through this stage and then this stage. And I I can be in acceptance one moment. And and then a few minutes later, I'll be in denial. I say, yeah, I'm all right. Yeah. I can handle that. You know, it's, it's a denial that I'm true to sex addict. You know, that's, it's, and I'll be sometimes, you know, in anger. And I've got to today to where I'm, I'm not afraid of my anger. I understand uh, I'll get a little piece of anger uh, at somebody else or something for hitting me in the eyeball with some piece of lustful stuff. And it's their fault, you know, in my guts. And... Uh, I work on through some of those stages and, and I can say, you know, I remember Roy saying there, it's not them out there, it's me. And I can work into reality. I can work into acceptance with some of that. Anyway, stages, you're in some stage right now of, of some loss or you wouldn't be in this room probably for some kind of loss. Uh, some, and there are all kinds of losses. Um, some of the most traumatic in our lives, um, has been for me, have been the f- loss, uh, of a dream or, uh, a re- of, a, a need in my life, uh, because of this disease or, and maybe combination of other diseases, restless, irritable, and discontent people and families and, uh, my earliest recollection, I always wanted a grandfather. I never had a grandfather. And it wasn't until about four or three and four years ago I started finding out both of my grandfathers were sexaholics. One was just kicked out of the family because his behavior was so horrible that, you know, he was not accepted in the family and uh, he was divorced from my grandmother and with five kids and all like that, that he wasn't around. He wasn't allowed to be around. My other grandfather on the other side killed himself. 
which is the most common very thing with this disease. And so I didn't have him around. So that was a loss in my life. I always wanted and needed and desired a grandfather. Didn't have one. And the only grandparent I did have was a grandmother that uh, a cancer killed her when I was kind of young. My mother died when I was 21 and in college. That's, that's been the hardest, I guess, the most difficult loss in my life. But, you know, this recovery has helped me work into some acceptance of that. Because my, my kind of uh, dealing with her loss, the loss of her, has led me... Let me this is one thing I want to understand about grief. Uh, grief is like the tide of the ocean. It's going to happen. You're not going to stop it. You're not going to evade it. It's going to happen, and it's either going to be dealt with in a accepting, loving, caring way, or if you're going to try to fight it, it's going to come out sideways. <laughs> it's going to happen. Grief happens. You like it or not, it can be done, dealt with well, or it can be like Roy said in there, we cover our feelings with compulsive sex. And the solution, we stop, you know, covering our feelings with compulsive sex. And in this disease, that's, that's what I did. And that's what many, many of us can identify with. Uh, what grief has helped me do in this recovery for me so far and, and I'm still doing it. I'm still working on my process of grief. Uh, is that it's helped me understand that my mother, uh, why she was so angry and as I, when I was a child, she was angry at men because her father had abused her and her sisters and was such a horrible person in their family. He was the one that was, kicked out of the house and the divorce and all of that. And uh, such shame and such uh, trouble with that family that my mother, uh, when she you know, noticed any signs of me uh, maturing or coming to adolescence and, and masturbation, all that, all that, just, that was just the most uh, you know, stirring thing for her because she hadn't dealt with her. Uh, grief, and or maybe that was her way of doing dealing with it. Some uh, a bad way of dealing with it, but that was maybe that was all she had. And that's kind of I, like uh, Steve said: like we all grieve in our own way, own shape, own form. Uh, and I've known some strange ways people have dealt with with grief. Uh, I've had the privilege of uh, doing a lot of funerals. I've seen a lot of grief. And some of it comes out pretty crazy. And uh, I have to just laugh at it sometimes, you know. And have, being a, a kind of a representative of the clergy of, of God, I catch a lot of grief. <laughs> and if you read the scriptures, you know, our kind of history of uh our faith and all that, it's very healthy to get mad at God. One person wrote a note to us already. He says, uh, have you ever uh, made amends or, or tried to, uh, to uh, a deceased a family member? And uh, I, I think it's, I, what I've encouraged some people to do, like I've done, is, is sit down and write an angry letter. Get mad at God and write it out. With pencil and I like pencil and paper because you can put those jab marks in there and, and just scratch through stuff and uh, you know draw pictures or whatever you want to do and just get mad at God. Read scripture. Read the Psalms. Why have you forsaken me? Yeah, that's real, and that's okay. God can take it, and He because. 
uh, like a friend of mine, he was uh, leading the, the, the program here on humor in recovery. And I, I told him, I said, oh, yeah, that's good. But you got to go through grief before you can get to the humor. That's, to me, that's our freedom comes when we do get through our grief. It's some better space or place with it to where we can laugh about it. We can laugh at ourselves. We can laugh about the loss. This is a family disease. There's a lot of damage, as you know, with this disease. There, the loss of dreams uh, for those of us who have injured other people in our lives, uh, my wife or some wives, some of the most painful losses I see who are wives who have lost their dream of a, of a life with a person, mm-hmm. with a husband and it was and children and the white picket fence and whatever their dream is, that has been crushed and lost. The loss of that dream needs to be dealt with. And it will be dealt with. And I think like Steve mentioned, uh, medically, it can really harm us uh, not to deal with our grief. It can do real physical damage to a psychological, spiritual, mental physical damage to us uh, for not doing healthy grief. and uh, So grief's going to have its way and it can kill us. And uh, good, thank God we're, we're most of us in the, around here are trying not to cover our feelings with compulsive sex. We're trying to deal with our grief in a much healthier way. And I encourage you to do that. And yes, professional help is certainly appropriate. Uh, there are those who know better than others how to help us with our grieving and uh, identify it, act on it, and take a real health, much healthier action in our recovery. Anyway, I think, I, I, we're, like Steve said too, we are blessed to be in recovery because we have the chance of dealing with our grief and loss. Uh, When we're active in an addiction, we're covering our loss. We're covering over. We're we're numbing that uh, feelings and those experiences with our addictions. And that's that's a well-known fact there, too. So we're really uh, fortunate to be in recovery and being able to talk about this and, and contemplate and then put into action some possible healthier grieving than we've been doing. Anyway, that's all i got for now. Thanks. I think we've got some questions. You want to try some first, Steve? Um, Steve, I'm a sexaholic. I got three questions here that I'd like to try and um, combine. Um, and I'm going to, well, I think I'd rather let, I'm going to ask God to try and combine them. Um, one of them is Have you made amends to a deceased family member and how? Uh, maybe that's not a combination. I don't have any direct experience with this, but if someone would like, I have a former sponsor that has a handout and and the, and the short answer is this is about tears this is about grief and loss um, so um, uh, if you're interested I, I can I can I can get you a set of instructions that are not fellowship approved um, it's an outside uh, process but it has worked very powerfully for some 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 people that I know so, um, uh, and, and then there's two of my siblings do not speak to me as a result of acting out. How do I deal with loss that may one day be restored? And then three is how do you stay sober through grief? And to me, these three really all work together. I haven't made amends to a deceased family member, but I, I mentioned my youngest stepson who's one of my victims 
And I have, I was instructed, and I have chosen to abide by that instruction, not to have contact with him anymore. Um, He's in his 30s now, but uh, I haven't seen him since he was 14. Um, God knows how to do stuff. When I was writing my men's letter to him, um, I had a I had help from a sponsor, and this sponsor knew that he that this was outside of experience, his experience. So he instructed me to find men with recovery that I expect uh, respected that had been abused when they were boys by men. And I had a therapist who was very specially qualified in this area. And I wrote a letter. And I kept this letter. I didn't send this letter. It wasn't clear that I could send this letter without doing harm. But it was a very important part of me facing the truth about what I had done and what I had lost by doing that. So I was invited to tell my story near Nashville, as that's where I was living at the time. And I read this letter. I told the context, and I read this letter. And during the share, I I was crying. This is the most I'd ever shared, deepest I'd ever shared in a meeting before. And and there was one fellow who was bawling in particular. And afterwards, he comes up to me, and he said, I was the same age as your stepson was when my stepfather molested me. And he molested me in the same way that you molested your stepson. And I have always wanted to get that letter from him. And I wasn't able... And and, and there's this thing about how do I deal with the loss that may one day be restored. For many years, I, I thought the best most beautiful thing that happened would, would be that if I could make an amends in that relationship with, with him would be restored and that I would be safe and I could be the kind of father, stepfather that he deserved to have instead of the one that I had been. And it didn't play out that way, but God sent me a substitute and God sent that man in that meeting a substitute. He, he knows how to do stuff. So this isn't a deceased family member, but it was an amends to someone I couldn't see. After some time, my therapist talked to his therapist and to my ex-wife, and she talked to him, and he was 19 by that point, and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll receive that letter. And I don't know much more than that. Part of the letter was, I ended by saying... I know that you may not want to ever have contact with me. And if that's your wish, I'll respect it. And I have not heard from him. So I can only assume that part of my amends is to honor that. And to if he doesn't ever want to see me again, then he doesn't have to. How do you stay sober through grief? Grief is energy. Anger is energy. Pain is energy. Pleasure is energy. Wind is energy. I cannot control the wind. But if I know how to use a sail, and by the way, I don't, but I love this image. If I know how to use a sail, I can have a choice in which way the wind blows me. So grief is energy. How do I stay sober through grief? I know how to let grief blow me back into my disease. I think this entire program is about learning how to let energy in my body and in my soul blow me closer to God. Still more spiritual growth. How do I stay sober through grief? Same way I stay sober through anything else. I'm a sexaholic. It's not possible for me to be sober. Lust wasn't my problem. It was my solution 
Sobriety is my problem. I can't stand sobriety. It was what made life tolerable. And if I don't have if I don't have lust, I've got to have a substitute. Well, God knows how to do stuff. He knows He knows how to give me a substitute. And I stay sober through grief by having a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Gene Sexaholic. Somebody wrote this one and I like it, but uh, it says, I've been struggling with grief for a decade, but for not, uh, not supposed to be in resentments or anger, but be happy, joyous, and free. How am I supposed to deal with it? Um, I, I think uh, I've grown to where I'm not afraid of anger or the pain in, in my. Uh, recovery. Actually, I, I welcome it uh, when it's coming from me because it gets my attention. And it, it always points me to something that's going on inside me that's a lot more sensitive underneath that anger. It's usually pain. It's usually fear. So uh, I can work with that. I can get some help and work with that and then talk, talk to other people in this program that I trust and, and deal with that. So I think it, uh, resentments are a real good red flag that says, okay, you need to do some work here on that. And uh, we all have resentments. We all have anger. And uh, I, I'm, I'm just... Uh, I, I, I'm caught, I'm careful about doing, going to this point of saying I have to be happy, joyous, and free. Sometimes I am. As a matter of fact, a lot of times I am because of this program and things it's given me. But I know today I'm not always going to be happy, joyous, and free. And that's okay. And, uh, actually, it's, I think it's very healthy. Oh, I'm cheating. Thanks, Gene. Thanks, Gene. Many choices. It's a good problem to have. Much better than not having a choice. Um, okay. Um, <clears throat> I probably uh, got misunderstood. This was addressed to me. It said you sexually abused your girls. I didn't. I didn't sexually abuse my girls. There were. Three physicians in my treatment center. I didn't have have any girls in the home. I sexually abused one of my stepsons, and I think I've already. It says, "What are your thoughts and feelings about how that affected you and them, and how to make amends to them?" One thing <clears throat> that I needed was truth. I had a victim that was my. Uh, stepson's best friend. He was older than my stepson. He was... Um, and what happened, what I did to him... See, see, already I'm trying to put it in a different way. What I did to him um, was choices that he made were part of what I did to him and it... And it caused me to want to see my behavior in a less severe light. So I don't want to get too explicit on the tape, but one day I had a therapist that challenged me on the words I was using to describe what I had done. Um, I will, I will give an example. Early on, before I had any therapy, I, I, I had an affair with a young man, was, was my words. And, and now today, I, I try to be real careful and said, I abused a child, I sexually abused a child. The reason I want to change the words is to hide 
from the truth about what I did. And the reason I want to hide from it is because of the blame and the condemnation I feel when I stand in the truth. But I had to be in that truth in order to get free. And I had to get free of the condemnation that I brought on myself for what I had done before I could make be part of making anything right to anybody. Now, I don't have any control over fixing the pain. And I there's, there's another question. There's many good questions here. There's another question about what children do and the pain they feel when they become adults. I've heard some words in another fellowship. Some of my kids have problems have my name on them, but their solution has their name on them. And the best thing I can do to make amends in these cases is to practice these principles in all my affairs and be the, try to learn how to be the kind of man that God wants me to be. And God does stuff. There will be somebody there for each one of us when we're ready to face what we need to face to get free. Um, I find, I, I apologize if I'm not able to to really focus and, and answer a question directly. These, um, these experiences are very heavy for me, and, and these questions go places that are so deep and so broad. Um, I'm grateful for the ability to be alive, sober, and not in jail today. And uh, thank you for being here. I, I, I'm going to let Gene... Thank you. Several of you have written some very good questions about family members and uh, children that are having uh, addictions or or conflicting things. And uh, I I was an alcohol and drug abuse counselor for eight years, and I've faced the uh, pain in families with addictions for years. And uh, I like what one of my first coworkers said to me early on when her child was facing, uh, you know, problems with her addiction and said, look, there's always recovery. Uh, you know, we are, we know very well in our lives how powerful, cunning, and baffling our disease is. All addictions are. There are things that happen in this family disease that are way beyond our control. There's going to be a lot of damage and things going on that we cannot handle. We must work, number one, our program. The best thing I can do for my son and daughter is, and my grandkids is to stay sober today. Personally, sexually, chemically sober today. To be as decent a father and grandfather or husband as I can be. Brother, and my sisters, and uh, I'm in, I'm really glad that I'm sober today. I'm very grateful to be sober because I can make some little bit of progress with that. If I'm in my addiction, there's no such thing. Uh, none of that's even uh, possible. But there, there are oh, there's some horrible things you've described here, and there is this disease. All all addictions do some horrible damage in our lives and our families. And we're going to see some horrible stuff. It's just stuff we're not going to be, have power over. And we're going to have to, uh, you know, turn a serenity prayer again and again and again. Because there, there's just a lot of, there is, thank God there are, are things, progress being made with addiction recovery. We're in one right now, a very good one right now. And uh, anyway, that's all I got on that one. Thanks. Thanks, Gene. Yeah. We got five.
go ahead. You know, you know we're we're but a small part of a great whole. Um, when I was talking a minute ago about not trying to want to see the truth about what I've done, the reason what I'm doing there, you know, I had a what's called a plea hearing where I pled guilty. I went to the court and I said, I'm guilty of these crimes you've charged me with. And and everybody who's charged with a crime in this country has two choices. They can plead guilty or they can plead not guilty. And if you plead not guilty, you have something called a trial where you can defend yourself. But if you plead guilty, you don't get to defend yourself. You can ask for mercy. You've you got to do one or the other. And I was trying to do both. I was trying to get mercy and plead not guilty at the same time. Mercy isn't for the innocent. And in order to get mercy, I had to plead guilty. I had to stop defending what I'd done. I had to stop trying to call it by a certain name or trying to tell you things about what my victim did or didn't do to try to get you to see that I would, to try to get escape from the condemnation that, that was due. You know, there, there's a shame to what I did that I own. I've got to learn to own it. I didn't know how to own it without taking all this other shame on. Toxic shame, they call it. It's from the devil, it's from the disease, whatever name you want to give it. It's not the truth. And when I get in reality, there's a God of love who can keep me sober through grief, through resentment, through anything that life can throw at us. I haven't been through all that life can throw. I've been through some things that other people haven't, but I've seen some people walk through some stuff, and I, I just don't see how it's possible. With it's got God's fingerprints all over it. That 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 can only happen by the power of a loving God. So, um, I'm very grateful for this topic. I'm very grateful that God knows how to take the worst things I've ever done and do good with it. I mean, he's got skills. Um, we're out of time. Um, yeah. There's one good question here about making amends to part of their family. That, uh, And I, I know for myself, I've had, you know, powerful experiences with making those amends. First of all, I talked to my sponsor about it. I write it out exactly what I'm going to say. I was wrong, da, da, da. And with God's help, I'll never do that again. And uh, But I'd have to wait for the right time to share that. I, I couldn't just set it on my clock. I had to wait for God gave me that right time when the pickup truck doors closed and we were in there alone and I could say what I needed to say and it was an okay time to say it. I could say it. And then I needed to be ready to listen. Because what I was thinking of was so wrong may or may not be what my son or my daughter, whoever, think was so wrong. And I could get an earful. And I did. And, and I do. But it, it's a step towards making amends. Thanks. I'm Jesus. I call it. Anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. The principles of essay are found in our 12 steps, 12 traditions. Let's circle up and close with a third step prayer.
three-step prayer. God, I offer myself to thee, to deal with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that they figure over them, and may bear witness to those I would help. Thy power, thy love, and thy way of life, may I do thy will always. If you come back, it works. If you work, it's a word worth it. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.